Hello and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Good morning. Uh, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I am good. I am ready. I can uh, press record on here. Should I just... <laughs> Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield, and this week we have singer Raheel Jamalford discussing the Electric Prunes 1968 album, Release of an Oath. Release of an Oath. Why did you choose this record to talk about? Well, I was thinking about like what's like kind of a not you know, it doesn't get as much credit as it should as a record or just has like an interesting story of a record. And this the story behind this record always stood out to me because it's just such a bizarre thing that like you were saying, like when I first heard of Electric um, Prunes, I was I think I was in high school and I had gotten like a Nuggets compilation and I had too much to dream last night. I was like, oh, this is such a rad song. And like back then I was listening to like The Seeds and 13 Floor Elevators and like, you know, that whole like that whole style of psychedelic garage, you know, pretty, pretty things and like, you know, whatever. Um, So I always associated the band with that kind of style of music. So I think the first time I heard, I'm like, electric prunes, I don't want to listen to this. Somebody put it on. And I was like floored because I was like, what is this incredible, you know, these incredible compositions that don't have any, maybe the slightest kind of nod to psychedelic, you know, infusion, but it just sounds like Gregorian or like, you know, mystical, spiritual, and just like very like dramatic, you know, with like such, um, such deeper composition. So I always was drawn to that. Um, I've always loved this record, but I love the story behind it that um, they got. And that was actually my first introduction into Axelrod, who I have come to really love um, as a producer and and just a writer. Um, And I think that I just chose it because it's just such a funny story that he, you know, used this garage psychedelic group as like a vessel for his you know beautiful compositions basically one thing that i thought was so interesting and you mentioned it um you know earlier is that who plays on this record so originally it's like this actually doesn't have except for the singer of the electric prunes this yep this doesn't have any of the electric prunes on it i mean and even the (laughs) setup that he wrote this record around, he found a band called Climax um, that worked all these tracks up. And the only guy from that band was Richard Whetstone. um, Mm -hmm. And he's the only one that's on the record. But the rest of the record is Howard Roberts, Carol Kay, Don Randy, and Earl Palmer, who he's kind of like the history of rock and roll drummer. And of course, Carol Kay. My idol. (laughs) No, and I just, I remember reading that liner note that one original or one member of the Electric Prunes is actually on the recording. And that blew my mind that everybody else was session. I was like, how is this possible? (laughs) Like, how can that come to be, you know? But it's, it's a mind blow for sure. 
And uh, the other weird thing is that David Axelrod didn't even own the rights to the name The Electric Prunes. That was the producer, David Hassinger's. I didn't. I don't know too much of the backstory of them as like a band, like a psychedelic band before this. I kind of, they got my interest so much more in depth when once I heard the last, both this record and the record that they recorded before it. So the third and fourth record of theirs that both were produced by Axelrod. But I found, like I learned that Hassinger, he actually is like, is like fully to credit for their first hit because I think he recognized that they were they didn't have any ability to like have a um they don't they didn't have like a real identity as a band so he hired um Annette Tucker and Nancy Mance to uh write the hit I had too much to dream last night so from the go they didn't really have their own formed identity so I just think it you know and and I think he also David Hassinger also was the one who like introduced this concept album and and brought in Axelrod. Um, like, so I, I really think it's just such a bizarre twist that yeah, he owns the rights to the, to the name of the group and to the, you said also the music, is that what? I don't know about that part of it, but, um, but I thought it was interesting that the band didn't even yeah. own their own name. I know it's it's so wild. And I also read that um, this, this is so funny to me, but when they were like when they had recorded the previous record, um, I think it's Mass in F minor and also Axelrod produced it, wrote it. Um, they I guess there was like one time they had tried they played it live and it was like chaotic and that nobody could play it. Everybody like notes were falling on the ground like. Like, I guess it was just such a big mess, which I think is just, you know, very telling of that they couldn't, the actual band could not perform these songs, you know? Hmm. What are <laughs> what are some of your favorite tracks on this record? Oh gosh, I think if I could put Holy Are You on every single mix I ever made, I would be so happy. I think, I mean, that's just my favorite, favorite track. I would, I, I worked at a record store and I think they hid that record from me after a while because I, I would come in and I would play that song, like the first song that I wanted to hear every morning for a good year or two. Holy are you That's amazing. You know, that <laughs> that that song is sampled by Quasimodo on uh, Return of the Loop Digga. Right. Which is kind of interesting. And I'm, I'm sure, I think there were some other ones like the Beat Nuts sampled it. Yeah. Yeah, that's Beat Nuts one is my favorite. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, at the record store I work at, it's so funny. You know, the people who responded the most were all the hip hop diggers who like some of them are, you know, bigger bigger names in the hip hop world, but they like, oh, I think it was, I'm trying to think of who it was because he's such a legend. Um, he Who who produced, was it Illmatic? Who produced Illmatic? 
uh, I can't, it's not coming to me. But anyways, it's funny because anybody who ever came up and said something, it was like a hip hop guy <laughs> because they recognized the sample, which is just, just pretty funny. Yeah, it's tonally really cool too. I mean, I think it's, it, I love the way it's recorded. I love the, the sound of the record. Do you, uh, do you hear this record showing up in your own um, music? I do, I always love like an element of some sort of avant or like something, you know, he has these like avant touches or like, I, I think like string arrangements and, and I think that it's very much like a distinct, like you're saying, like, I don't want to hear it done poor. I, it needs to be done really well, you know? And like, especially on this album is like, sounds so, they're so moody and like almost dramatic, you know? But I, I think that there's a way to bring it in. Like, I I swear, it's like I'll listen to, um I'll listen to like a jazz record or something. And I got really excited to, I wanted, I became obsessed with vibraphone. And I was like, like, I wanted to be Bobby Hutcherson. And I was like, okay, let's put some freaking vibraphone on this. And we did, we put, we incorporated some vibraphone on our last record. But I mean, you know, in in a in a different way for sure. But I've been actually um, recording solo music um, with my good friend producer Alex Epton um, at uh, Excel Recordings, and he and I we have a lot of like similarities, and same in that like world of like just compositions that you know Scott Walker like that kind of style. And I feel like it's I just am able more so with this with this solo project to inc yeah incorporate these kinds of things that are just like a little bit less rock you know like a little bit less in the indie garage whatever music world um but i try all the time i try to get away with all kinds of things all the time for sure I think you're right. I think it takes a little nerve sometimes to to bring in those elements that are kind of not your standard fare. Totally. I mean, I think it's so funny that like even with this record, like it just even just reading about it affirms that there are these creative minds behind so much of what we hear. Like this guy Hassinger who is like, oh, I want to bring in this and he it, it, even I mean I always thought it reminded me of like Gregorian chants or like Christian hymns you know um, and he was like I want to introduce like this concept of Gregorian meets like psychedelic music and thinking that that would be a pop hit you know but I love it's just so unbelievable you know but but somehow he convinced them and of course like he got somebody who masterfully made this like you know had this communion of these two different very different sounds and came up with such uh two incredible uh records you know and I guess I mean I guess uh the mass in f minor the previous one the third record not the not, not the uh, one we're talking about i guess there was a hit on it 
like an underground hit because it was on the Easy Rider soundtrack, which I I didn't know about. I just read about that. But I, I just think that's interesting because to me, I, I prefer release of an oath as an album. I think it's so much such a bigger sound, so so much like well well formed, better formed as like a entire piece. I don't know. I I like really, really. This is a, a album that just continues every time because in the record world too. Like at the record store, this record used to come in a little bit. I think in the '90s because of its like um, its popularity in the hip hop sampling world, it was like sought after and and so it was like impossible to find. And then it kind of like in the past ten years, I feel like you could find it, but. It's less and less often now. So every time I see I would see it come in, which like, I don't know, the seven years I worked in the at the record store, I think I I came across maybe five copies of it, you know, and every single time I put it on, it's just really just hits me the same way, you know, and but I think I think that Axelrod, like just like delving into his discography and and listening to all of his music, I think that's what he's like most known for. At least to me, it stands out. The the strongest are his string arrangements, uh, which you were talking about. You know, he just does it really, really well. I kind, it kind of made me feel like reading up and doing a little homework on them made me feel so bad for them because I don't, I mean, they just didn't even get to really make it their own hit. I mean, of course, a lot of music, especially back then, was being written by, yeah, like I think that this um, Annette Tucker, I feel like I know her. I think she wrote like some, I think she wrote for like Sinatra or, or some, I, I feel like her name stands out as like one of these big house like writers, you know, but it's just so crazy that I didn't, I always just thought they were, so, you know, like you just hear the music and you think that this band who's performing it that you're listening to, like the singer actually wrote the lyrics, especially when it's such a weird kind of out there kind of abstract, you know, like I had too much to dream last night. It's just very strange, but but yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised to find out that like those hard hitters were on the album because I always knew as session musicians, but I didn't know as like the like hugest names from like Wrecking Crew, you know, Carol Kay and all of those those folks. Like that's really really badass. Yeah, to your your point about the somebody singing a song that they didn't write. I, I you know there's there's several examples of that. You know Elton John and uh, Robert Hunter and Jerry right. Jerry Garcia and uh, sometimes there's a really great marriage of. No, that's that's definitely definitely true. I think I think that's like where a lot of the magic lies. Honestly, is like having like this like lended 
yeah, energy from like somebody else who you obviously you have to have some crazy kind of relationship with that person. But it's true. Like these marriages really do make the like the music benefits from it. Totally. I think it was just so strange for me, like just especially coming from a lyricist point of view, you know, like it's it's crazy. And when you watch powerhouses like Ellen John or whoever is singing, you're like, oh, my God, you know, this music must have came out of your soul, which it does. But I guess when you're attached to like the lyrics of it or something, it's just it's just a wild thing to think about, you know. Now, this was a fun one. I'm glad you sent it. Yeah, I it was the first thing I can't like literally I read Heba's uh, email and it just like I was it was like release of an oath like I just see the album appear in my head with like the hand or whatever. And I was like, that's weird. Why is that just jumping out to me right away? But I was excited. So I, I messaged you and then I was like, OK, I got to actually think about it. And then, of course, like a billion other albums. I'm like, I could talk about the earth, like the different signs. It's like the Joe Henderson, Alice Coltrane record or like uh, whatever, you know, these other so many other albums came to me. But honestly, this one is just is ever present in my life and it's just such a such a cool story and funny to like a funny weird strange story to talk about awesome (laughs) well thank you yeah thanks so much for having me i this is this is my bread and butter this is the stuff i love to do Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com along with our regular podcast and online content.